Hello and welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass with me, Philip. And in this podcast, I'm going to be going through a question and answer session with you guys from some Instagram stories I did the other day asking you your burning questions that you have about Leathercraft, about life, about anything in general, really. Uh, But before we get started, I just want to mention about what's going on in the world at the moment with the coronavirus. A lot of people are concerned, especially some of you who have businesses, um, who have jobs where you've been sent home from. It's a troubling time. It's a difficult time for many of us. Um, You know, as I said, especially if you have your own business, a lot of the orders are down. People aren't earning as much money because, of course, customers are choosing to conserve as much as they can, especially uh, with regards to finances. So it's a difficult time for many of you. And I just want to say my thoughts go out to all of you uh, who have been affected by this. And when I say all of you who have been affected, it is really most of us, because wherever you are in the world, this seems to be a, a very difficult and troubling time. So thoughts are going out for you guys. And if anybody has any concerns, Uh, about anything in general but especially about business or they want any advice please feel free to contact me philip at leathercraftmasterclass.com or alternatively you can use the contact form on the website so moving on from that uh, we're going to go through some questions and answers and i'm going to dive straight into it actually on this one And we're going to start with a section asking about linings and reinforcements, which is always an interesting subject. And questions I get asked a lot about are what linings to use, what reinforcements to use, etc. So going into the first question, various types of interfacing uh, pros and cons. So interfacing, interlinings, underlinings, generally terms used to describe uh, stiffeners or reinforcements which are directly adhered to leather to give them a different structure, a different feel, a different temper. For example, if you see a handbag, very soft leather on the outside, but it has a firm structure and it holds its shape rigidly very well, chances are on the inside, glued directly to it, is going to be a reinforcement of some kind that is stiffer than the soft leather on the outside. So various types of interfacing pros and cons. Um, I guess I'll start with something like uh, board. Um, You could think of what would be a good example of that. Uh, Bonded leather board is a very popular one. Salpa, um, Salamander's Salpa is a very popular bonded leather board, which is used for very rigid bags. So probably not for things like cases, attache cases where you need something hard but something firm. So bonded leatherboard is great for that. It's especially good if you're not flipping a bag. If you're flipping a bag, it's not going to be the best one because you're going to see more creases because it doesn't stretch and compress very well, but it's very good for that. Uh, A more natural version is going to be leather itself. So if you can get leather, vegetable tan, undyed vegetable tan leather in, you know, anything from 0.5 to one millimeter thick, you can use it instead of bonded leatherboard, which is 
generally designed for economic reasons more than practical reasons because you can switch with actual leather quite easily which I've done many times in the past but it tends to be more expensive and for certain cases you might find that you can't have you can't get it in the right thicknesses or you can't get it in the right sizes because it's a natural product so it does make sense sometimes to use a bonded leather board other types of interfacing such as canvas um, material in general also microfiber is actually quite popular glued directly to leather adds some extra firmness and holds shape a little bit better so for example the de Havilland travel bag uses canvas on the inside which is a traditional material it doesn't stop it from flexing it allows it to mold to the shape of the contents a bit more than say bonded leatherboard but it does add a lot more non-stretch and the benefits of using material microfiber canvas being an example is that it compresses quite well so as long as you haven't added too much glue to it um, it's not going to be overly stiff so you can actually use it on a flipped bag now this is a huge subject and there's a lot of questions to get through but that's kind of the gist of it so it really depends on what you're going to do with it is it going to be flipped or is it going to be stitched externally then you can use a more board-like substance another example would be uh, cellulose uh, fiberboard which is what are the brand names for that like texon bontex those are other ones as long as you're not flipping it or you're not using it on highly flexible areas where it needs to be soft and flexible um, then that's also a good choice so moving on to the next one uh, reinforcements to be used on a portfolio bag so portfolio case um, and what material do you use for piping so that really depends because if you're making a portfolio bag which it, a portfolio bag for those of you who don't know is a very thin slim case usually for uh, sheets of paper um, for files and things like that and you generally hold it under your arm and it has an external zip or zipper that goes uh, across the top and down one side and sometimes you'll have a small brass or some kind of lock on the top as well some of them also come with handles that actually pull out of the side so you can hold it like a regular briefcase if you've got a lot of contents that are a bit more heavy inside but it's thin enough that you can you know put it under your arm and then you can have that arm free or that hand free to hold another case so they come in handy they used to be very very popular um, they're popular along, among makers because they're actually quite fun to make um, but what reinforcement would I use for a portfolio bag typically I would be making that out of bridal leather or some kind of vegetable tan leather and because of its stiff nature I probably wouldn't use any other reinforcement if you're going to go with a more contemporary style of portfolio case then I would probably you know if you're using um, a soft chrome tan leather for example I would probably use thin vegetable tan leather on the inside of the bag and if you have the grain side of each piece of leather facing the furthest away from it so you're gluing the flesh sides together that actually adds more stiffness as well because the grain layer is usually a little, bit, a little bit more stiff so if you put the stiffest parts furthest away from each other i.e you glue the flesh side to the flesh side then that adds some extra stiffness as well 
Um, but again, you could use uh, bonded leatherboard. You could use uh, cellulose fiberboard, um, you know, or leather itself. So it really depends uh, what your budget is, what you can get hold of, the right thicknesses. But that might involve some prototyping. But generally speaking, they are made with vegetable tan leather or bridal leather, um, being very English in their style. Bridal leather is popular here, so that's what they would be made from. So I probably wouldn't use a reinforcement, but uh, yeah, it really depends on the leather. And the other half of the question is, what material do you use for piping? Well, generally, the material on the outside is going to be leather. On the inside, I would also use like a leather core. So anything from 1 to 1.5 millimeters of uh, leather cord, um, which you might be able to get hold of. If not, you can just use um, any, any kind of string as long as it's firm enough. I know a very popular material to use on the inside of piping is Filou Chinois 332, which is the thickest version of Filou Chinois. It's about 0 0.8, 0 0.75 to 0.8 uh, practically measured in here in the workshop. So that adds a little bit of something to kind of hold it all together, adds some stretch resistance but also it makes it easier to stitch in than just folding a piece of leather. The cord actually gives you something to index against and measure from. So that's one of the benefits of having cord inside piping. Um, you can use other things. You can use polyester, you can use cotton. It really depends on what you can get hold of. But generally I prefer to use leather and if you can, whether you choose leather or you choose some kind of um, thread on the inside of your piping, try and match it, if you can, to the color of the leather. So on bottom corners, which are notorious after you know a decade or two of wearing out from friction, if the cord on the inside is the same color as the leather on the outside, it's not as obvious. I know on some Vuitton bags that I've repaired, many years ago now it's common for Vuitton to use it's almost like a plastic like a soft plastic not quite rubber maybe a very hard rubber but it's usually black and their piping is commonly a tan color and when that wears through it's very obvious now I think one of the reasons that Vuitton does that is because it's it's almost like a, like a reminder it's time to take it back to the shop and get it repaired maybe it's another way of adding income in repairs for Vuitton I really don't know, but why they chose to use black, I'm not entirely sure. But whatever the case, try and match your piping to the exterior, and it gives a little bit more longevity to your leather goods and uh, makes it look better for longer. Moving on to the next one. Is there a rule for how much smaller the lining is when folding, example, a wallet? <sighs> Generally, no. The main reason is because it really depends on the thickness of your leather you might lose um, you know, a few millimeters on a curve. So for those of you who don't know what's, what's going on here, if you have a lining that's three inches by five inches, okay, so it's like a rectangle lining and you have an exterior leather that's three inches by five inches. So it's two rectangles of leather that exactly match each other. If you then fold them one way, what will happen is the lining will appear to get longer while the exterior appears to get shorter. Now they're the same 
measurements, exactly the same. But as you turn something around a fold, the exterior has to go over more distance. So it loses length, or it appears so. Um, so sometimes people try and figure out how much longer the lining, uh, how much longer the exterior needs to be in order to counteract that. I take a different method. I make sure that the lining is, is you know, 10% larger than the exterior leather, glue on a curve, and then just trim the lining to the exterior measurements of the outside leather. So, and I do this in, in much of my courses, and that way you get an exact match if you're very good with your knife and you can cut right up to the edge of the exterior leather, then that is a much better way in my mind of making sure that your lining matches the exterior. So I probably wouldn't try and figure out a mathematical equation of how to cut because it's we're working with a natural material here and there are variations in the way it flexes and sometimes when you add glue to certain leathers they can expand and then when they shrink the dimensions change. There's so many variables involved that I much prefer to glue on a curve and then trim the lining uh, to the necessary size. So the next set of questions are tools, leather and techniques. And the first question in this category is, are good tools essential for making high quality products? Are they a limiting factor? I would say outright, no, it's not essential to use high quality tools, but it is a benefit. It's, it's a little bit like um, in the fitness industry, uh, can a good workout make up for a poor diet? Well, no, no, it can't. But can a good diet make up for poor workouts? To an extent, yes. So are you know good tools in the hands of someone who's inexperienced are not going to be enable them or empower them to make quality products necessarily. It's the skills and techniques that they acquire and the experience they acquire that makes good quality products. If you put I don't know a better way of saying this amateur tools or cheaper tools or tools designed by people who don't really understand leathercraft very well. If you put those tools in the hands of an experienced craftsman, they are probably going to make leather goods that are just as high quality as they can with great tools. And the reason is they have more experience, they know how to adapt, they know how to make good quality products but it will handicap them to a certain extent because it's always good to have the right tool for the right job. So if you can afford it, get good tools. But avoid buying tools because they look cool or buying tools because everyone else seems to be buying them. I think a lot of people think that it costs a lot more money to get involved in leathercraft than it actually does because they look at all the tools that they think they need and think that's so much money but they don't actually need all of them yet. I'm a big believer in buy a basic set of kit, start creating things, and very quickly you're going to find out what you don't have and what you actually need. I know a lot of people want to get all the tools that they think they need before they start, and that's a great way of wasting money on tools that you end up going, mm, actually, I don't need that, I don't use that, I don't like using it, and you've spent 60 or 70 pounds or dollars on something you really didn't need. So I would say start with a basic kit and then gradually add to that over a period of time as you know, you will very quickly understand, oh crap, I need a better knife for that. Oh no, that's not working out. I need 
to use an awl or I need a better pricking iron or I need something to finish the edges properly or you know I need this and that and you'll find out pretty soon and that way you're not wasting money it can cost you time it can be a more inefficient way of making it if you have to stop a project and wait for new tools to arrive but you are always guaranteed to have tools that you know you're going to use if you buy them as you need them. So that's one way of doing it. If time is a constraint, go out and buy everything that you need and get started, absolutely. Or if you're impatient. But uh, waiting to uh, to find out whether you need them, it's, it's a surefire way of, of making sure that you have what you uh, only what you need. The next question asks, how do you deal with the smell of solvent-based contact adhesive? How do you deal with it? Well, first of all, uh, you probably know that I like solvent-based contact adhesive. Maybe it's because I'm mentally and physically addicted to uh, contact adhesive. <laughs> but I like how strong solvent-based contact adhes adhesive is on so many different substrates. You know, if you're gluing just leather to leather all the time or leather to other porous substances like board or canvas or all sorts of things, you can get away with using uh, water-based quite a lot. But if you absolutely have to have the strongest bond, I don't believe there's anything stronger than solvent uh, contact adhesive at the moment. If you find one that is strong, you know, a, a water-based contact adhesive that is stronger, you might not be using the right solvent-based contact adhesive. Nothing quite soaks in and anchors into leather like solvent can. It can go through waxy leathers, oiled leathers, um, you can glue onto metals, you can glue onto plastics, you can glue onto wood. Um, there isn't a lot that you won't stick successfully with a solvent-based adhesive because it can just eat through virtually anything, especially uh, waxes and oils. So I always make sure that I have an extractor fan. I don't always use it when I'm filming because of the noise, but I have a high-volume extractor fan, so it's more of an industrial one, and it really sucks air out fast. Open a window, make sure there's airflow going by you, and uh, perhaps only use it if you absolutely have to. And if you're gluing leather to leather, then use water-based contact adhesive, which I personally use as well. So, um, you know, it's just about taking precautions and making sure that you have adequate ventilation and you're using it when you absolutely need to use it. The next question asks, how to recognize the genuine crock leather over embossed? So that's an interesting question. I think that's actually the first time that I've been asked that. Um, online, forget about it, um, because you are probably never going to see the differences between a very well embossed calfskin, for example, over genuine crocodile leather. Some of them are so convincing, the definition is so well done that you cannot tell unless you're really holding it up close. But, you know, when it comes to a finished product, the only real way to, to tell is if you have two parts of the belly leather connected with a flank. So you see the tiles from the belly leather on the side of the bag, in the middle of the bag is the smaller tiles of the flank, and then all of a sudden there's belly leather on the other side, and it's probably in the, sh the same tile shape as the other side. Well, there's no crocodile or alligator that exists that has two bellies. You know, there's always a back and there's always a belly. 
So that's one way of seeing it on finished leather goods. If you're talking about buying skins for projects, well, you're pretty much going to know because it's going to come in the shape of a crocodile or a, or an alligator or whatever you're buying. And I don't think there exists at the moment any counterfeit crocodile skins made from uh, a bovine animal, cow, calf, etc., where it's actually got the outline like the shape of the crocodile. I don't think that exists. Um, you'd have to make quite the elaborate machine to pump those out. But generally, if you have a piece of skin in your hand, if you turn it over, you're going to see the shape of the tiles on the underside very well defined as well. So on a finished product, very, very difficult to tell online, on pictures. In the flesh, you're looking at whether there's two bellies, which is, is quite often the case. Um, and also when you look at it really up close, the grooves between tiles are usually not very well defined on fakes. It has a kind of a softer, rounded look to the defined lines. Um, but even the on, on crocodile species, one of the ways to tell crocodile from alligator is crocodiles have an isopore. So on the belly leather tiles, on the bigger ones, you'll see a dot at the bottom of each tile. And that dot is actually a nerve ending. So it can tell... Um, very very small movements or shockwaves inside the water of prey and it will use those isopores to detect where prey is perhaps if you can't see it in murky waters but it can tell there's a fish on the left hand side and it can you know the alligator can then go over there alligators sorry crocodile alligators don't have that so you'll see a dot at the bottom of the belly leather tiles on a crocodile on an alligator you will not but some embossed crocs also add that little detail, a little dot. So, you know, it really can be difficult to tell. So experience, especially if you can get hold of crocodile or you can go and visit a craftsman who has it, or you can go to a supplier that supplies exotic leathers where you can look, pick up, feel, smell, touch the real deal, then you'll very quickly uh, pick out fake. So, or embossed. So the next question is how to finish an edge without edge paint. Uh, edge consisting of one layer of vegetable tanned leather and the other layer of pig skin. I think I actually answered this one um, on stories, but I'll say it again anyway. I would probably go along the lines of, no, I, I answered that on a live, I think. I would probably go on the lines of um, a turned edge where the exterior leather turns over onto the pigskin and then stitched in. So the edges of the pigskin never get seen. The other thing that I would probably consider doing is an edge binding. So that's where you have a thin strip of leather that goes over the two layers, glued in and then stitched. And finally, if you wanna get really fancy, a French binding, which is where you stitch on one side of the binding on the flesh side and then turn it over, glue it onto the back, onto the pigskin side on the other side, and then you stitch it again in again underneath. So you will actually end up with one invisible seam and then one visible seam. I teach that in the Techniques of Hand Stitching, which was the first course I ever created on the Leathercraft Masterclass. Um, so that video is available to watch, and you will actually see the three differences between those. Um, another technique uh, involving pigskin, as it happens, was used on the video course that I produced called the Bloomsbury Attaché Case. For that one to finish an edge, an edge paint edge, 
with suede can be very difficult because the nap or the hairs can play havoc with a defined edge uh, which you need to have to get uh, edge paint on properly and consistently with a nice finish. Um, suede can you know th really throw a spanner in the works for that. So what I like to do is get a hot crease, especially one that has um, a rounded effect, like an, the FN series if you have a filatus, or if you have an edge creaser, the Wooter leather uh, brand of edge creases, give that rounded effect rather than just create a line. So using a hot crease, pulling it along that pigskin, actually heats it and temporarily keeps it in a smooth state. Now, if you're careful with it and you don't scuff that leather and lift the little hairs up or the nap, you can actually get your edge paint on and let it dry. And it's as easy as putting edge paint on regular leather. And then when it dries, you can sand it and add more layers. But that edge paint will actually hold that nap, those hairs in position, and you'll get a nice defined edge. So if you're using edge paint, that's the technique that I would use. So the next question is, what's a good all-purpose round knife? I've seen them in different sizes. That is really a larger round knife is, in my mind, for people who want to do a rock cut, as in you're rocking backwards and forth. So if you have the handle upright with the blade down on the surface, you can actually feed the leather into the blade. And what you're doing is rocking the blade forwards and it cuts, and then you pull the blade back, and you push more leather into it, and then you rock it forwards and back and forwards and back. In fact, that's how I cut the edge on the handle that I created in, in my course, the Lancet Rolled Handle. Uh, I think there's actually a video preview. Yeah, there is a video preview uh, on my Instagram account. You can go and see that if you want to see the one um, for the Lancet Rolled Handle. You can actually see a clip where I'm rocking it backwards and forwards. Now, if you're cutting long lengths of hide, then you're using that method, then a bigger round knife is just going to be a more efficient way of doing it. Now, if you were just pushing a round knife forward through leather, you can really use the smallest round knife that you that you want because no leather is going to be thick enough where it covers the distance from the table to your knuckles. You know, you've got even on the small round knife that I have, I think it's 125 millimeters across. Uh, what's that in inches? Uh, four and a half, five inches, something like that. Then that's going to be thick enough, you know, large enough for even the thickest leathers. So unless you're using that rocking technique, you won't, you don't really need the biggest round knife. In fact, a round knife that is too big tends to push your hand further away from the surface you're cutting on, which means you lose some accuracy. So personally, I like smaller round knives in general. But if you like the rock cut technique, then a larger round knife might suit you better. Next question. Uh, the best way to save money on tools uh, slash leathercraft, etc., with examples, please. Well, I did touch upon that earlier when I was talking about buying tools as and when you need them. If you've, you know, you're starting a business and you need to get production up and running, you can go ahead and buy more stuff. But by that time, I'm assuming that you probably would have amassed uh, a good toolkit, really. But not buying things that are not necessary, not buying tools because they look cool, 
um, not buying expensive tools because you see other artisans use them and you assume that if you use those tools, you'll get the same results that they did. Uh, it's, you know, if I could, I mean, if I could reframe that question instead of what's the best way to save money, I'm assuming that by wanting to save money, you don't have as much as you'd like to invest in the craft. So a better way of looking at this or a better question to ask would be, what's the best way to make money with my tools in leather craft, et cetera, with examples? Well, start selling them. Um, when I started uh, selling my leather goods, I would make things, sell them, take the profits, and then reinvest them back into the business. The best thing you can always invest in, the best thing to invest in, first of all, is yourself. Yourself, your tools, your knowledge, your techniques, your skills, your experience, that will always give the best results. If you invest in yourself first, the returns will always be better. So the best way to save money is to make money. Start selling leather goods. And at worst, you can use the money to buy tools and buy leather and make things. And essentially, your hobby is paying for itself. And then perhaps one day, if you really want to get into it, you can push harder and start earning money and start earning profits. And there is a viable business to be had from Leathercraft. As long as you understand there's more to a Leathercraft business than Leathercraft. A lot of it's about business, sales, marketing, understanding social media. There's a lot more to it than, uh, than just making things and hoping people buy them. But the best way to save money, don't buy tools that you don't need and start selling leather goods in order to get a profit. Next question, what leather do you think is underrated given its price and qualities? <sighs> That's a good question, actually. Um, what I would say, I'd say it's probably sheepskin, if I had to say. Sheepskin, you don't see it used that much because it, it's not as durable as pig. It's not as durable as goat, but it has a very smooth surface. Uh, usually it's pigmented, so it is actually very good for linings or things that aren't going to get a lot of friction or, or a lot of use. Um, it tends to be very easy to wipe down. I've made linings for handbags before with sheepskin. Very easy to maintain. A good, much cheaper alternative as well to calf leather uh, or even goatskin leather. So it's, it's not quite as durable, but people think that it's very, very uh, delicate. It's not delicate at all. It's just not, when it comes down to it, it's a bit more stretchy sometimes. And the grain layer isn't as, as hard as goatskin. So people tend to go for goatskin more. But to be honest with you, I think it's highly underrated. Great for the insides of wallets and things like that. If it's a good quality sheepskin, it's, uh, I, I think it's absolutely fine. Um, another one that might even top that for underrated is probably pigskin suede. Very durable. Um, of all the suedes, one of the most e the easiest to maintain because it can be cleaned quite vigorously because it's very strong and very tough. Some other suedes um, can tend to not look that great after cleaning because they're not as tough. So I think pigskin suede is another one that I like to use, which is quite underrated and not used very often. It's mostly seen inside English leather goods. You have to watch out, though, depending on your client base and what countries you're, you're selling it to. Some religions, obviously, you, you can't 
use pigskin, you know, and, and sell to certain countries. It's not going to be very popular. So you have to watch out for that, uh, in which case you can use goatskin suede. But for for me, pigskin, I think, is really nice inside cases, attache cases, folio cases, uh, briefcases, things like that. Very soft, very durable, but also I think it has one of the best smelling leathers that there is. When, when you open a case, it's a very heady, warm, leathery smell. It's difficult to describe, but I think it has one of the best aromas. Uh, it's unmistakable when you open a case, you get this beautiful uh, aroma. And the next question is, what is the best stitching tool you use? What is the best stitching tool I use? Um, it's kind of difficult to answer that one, mainly because there are so many different tools used in the process of stitching. Uh, I'll say so many. I mean, there's different ones, so you couldn't say one's better than the other because generally you're going to need uh, all of them. But if I had to say what's the best stitching tool, well, first of all, you're going to need a, a pricking iron or a pricking wheel or a stitching chisel or something to make uh, consistent holes in leather. Uh, for me, that would be a pricking iron. My favorite pricking irons are by Dixon. Joseph Dixon, no longer in production, unfortunately. So uh, most of them nowadays are, are vintage finds. I like the older vintage irons because they generally have wider prongs. There's very much uh, a tendency with modern pricking irons to have thinner and thinner prongs, which I don't quite understand because you typically end up with a stitch that looks like it was created with a diamond stitching chisel. Uh, perhaps you don't get holes as big, um, but you end up with very little angle on the stitches and something that looks, to me, in my mind, a bit more like typical machine stitching. So I don't tend to like some of the modern makers of pricking irons who have uh, very narrow prongs. So I like the vintage ones. It gives more of a traditional look. It's just my thing. It's, 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 I'm not saying that you need to start going out and trying to source vintage irons. It's just a personal preference. And since you're asking me, I would I would say uh, a vintage uh, Dixon iron is, is probably my favorite. But there are other irons that aren't that good and they're vintage. You know, like Barnsley, the, the width of the prongs is on some of them is not very wide at all. It's more like modern versions. So, you know, it, it really depends. Just because it's vintage doesn't mean it's good. So that would be for pricking irons, for awls, which I use in my leather work, especially for thicker leathers and going through many, many layers where you can't just penetrate all the way through with a pricking iron. I would go for Jerome David's awl. Now, Jerome David, I, uh, he does have an email address that I, I don't have on me right now, but you can actually buy his awls uh, for Rocky Mountain Leather Supply, you can buy them from Mando in Paris, but there's there's a few places in France that sell them, but in the US it's Rocky Mountain Leather Supply, and it's it's not called the Jerome David Oil, uh, which is the guy who designs and makes them. Um, it's known as the Rocky Mountain Titanium Oil or something like that. It's just by far the best oil that there is. It's not designed to be fashionable. It's not designed to be fancy for the sake of being fancy. It's designed by someone who really knows what the hell they're doing, which I appreciate. And every time I pick it up, I still marvel at the ergonomics, how well it stitches, how well it maneuvers in the hand. The construction of it is flawless. The, the blade that comes on it is demonic. It's just so sharp, easy to maintain. 
and it's it's one of these with a removable blade that you can you could actually twist it round in a thick piece of hide and the blade wouldn't not turn with the haft which some of them do that they'll actually just you know you'll keep turning and the blade will just go offset so it's well made well designed by someone who knows what they're doing now they i have seen newer versions and they're starting to come out with fancier wood uh, with that gold plating on the ferrule, uh, funky designs. I think they're going after the amateur market who are more, you know, buying tools based on what they look like more than anything. Nothing wrong with that. It's just, I think they're they're noticing a, a bigger surge in sales by making things look a little bit more, how do I say this, a bit more Gucci. So, <laughs> so people who really love the way a tool looks, have at it it's uh it's probably a great way of making more money for them but whatever the case that's my favorite all by a long shot so next question what are the absolute essential tools for getting started with leather work essential again it's so subjective it really depends on what you want to make uh, wallets then they're going to be certain essential tools that you won't you might not necessarily need for bags which you might not necessarily need for cases which might miss out tools that you need for watch straps and there's all sorts of things so it really depends first of all what you want to make initially you know you're going to need a work surface and something you can cut and mark on so you're going to need a work surface uh, I like to use Acetal sheets or Delrin, but there are many different companies that make sheets and cutting boards and things like that that you can both prick on and also cut on. You're going to need something to make holes in leather in order to stitch. So that could be, if you're beginning, stitching chisel, or it can be a pricking iron and an awl. You're going to need something to stitch in. So that might be a stitching pony that you can attach to your table, or it might be a more traditional set of clams, which you have on an angle or upright in between your legs. You're going to need a knife, a craft knife, in order to cut leather. You're going to need a mallet in order to strike tools, hole punches to make holes in there. You're going to need a smooth-faced hammer for tapping down stitches. You're probably going to need something to burnish edges if you're just starting out and you want to burnish edges. So a wooden burnishing tool. There's just needles, obviously you need thread. It's <laughs> There's just so many little different things. But if you start with those basics, if you start with those basics, um, very soon you're going to want to do something and you don't have the right tool for it. And then you're going to go need to buy it. Then you'll find out what the essential tools are. So what the essential tools for me is going to be different to you, to the next person, to the other person. It really depends. Everybody has their unique take on, on what they create, what they need, and what they what they have to have in order to move forwards. So starting with, you know, something that marks, something that cuts, something that allows you to stitch, something that allows you to finish the edges, a work surface to work from, glue, obviously, you're going to need also to let you know i also have a course supply list that comes with the courses so you can go onto course supplies on my website and then you can find the course and then i have most of the tools and materials that you're going to see in the course listed with links where i can find them for you guys so if you check that out you can see what you're going to need for each course so coming on to the last part here uh, which is general questions. 
Uh, interesting question. When did you stop considering yourself a beginner and how did you realize it? It's, you know, it's not like a relationship where you're a few weeks in and you go, uh, so we boyfriend and girlfriend now, you know, what's going on? And then you officially go, yes, oh, we are. Okay. Yeah. From now on. So what time is it? What day is it? You know, that's the official. It's not like that. Um, the way I look at it is I'm, I mean, I'm not a Buddhist in any way, but in Buddhism, there's the, what translates as the beginner's mind. So if you go on Google, Google the phrase beginner's mind or the beginner's mind, and it will give you a bit more of a, an idea of what I'm talking about. But essentially, as soon as you consider yourself to be an expert, as soon as you consider yourself to be a master, your brain tends to start to believe its own hype and you will generally stop your learning because you believe that everything that there is to know, everything that you need to know, you know it already. You know it. But if you change the, your outlook on things and you approach everything or especially everything new with a beginner's mind, what can I learn from this? What don't I know about this? What would I like to know about this? approach everything with a beginner's mind, you will always learn more. Now, other people might say to you, oh, you're a master or you're this or that. But if you really believe that you know everything there is to know, you will shut down the part of your brain that is responsible for learning. So by approaching everything with a beginner's mind, you keep yourself open all the time to learning new things, learning new skills. And during this time uh, of time of uh, recording this with the coronavirus going around, a lot of people are stuck at home, being sent home from their jobs, or there's no work, or they're restaurant or cafe owners, and you're on your own business, and there's no one coming. There's no such thing as wasted time. And if you can approach everything with a beginner's mind and always be looking to be like a sponge, just soaking up information, trying to learn new things all the time, always being curious, always being open, always being open to being proved wrong or changing the ability to change your beliefs quickly. Um, and change your mind. I think that is one of the best ways to grow and develop as a craftsperson and indeed as a person. It's always trying to approach everything as if it's the first time where your mind is full of wonderment and awe and this is amazing, this is new to me, rather than, yeah, you know, I know all that, or I could if I wanted to, I'm pretty sure I'd figure it out is, you know, losing that ego and, and being open to new things. So when did I consider myself, uh, stop considering myself a beginner? I still consider myself a beginner. In 10 years time, I'll be a beginner right up until the day that I can't lift an all because I'm too old. I will still be a beginner. There's, um, a really, really good, uh, I think it's still on Netflix, actually, Hiro Dreams of Sushi. It's about one of the most influential sushi masters in the world in Japan. And I think, I don't think he's alive anymore, but he was still in his 90s and making sushi. And he is just, by all the sushi connoisseurs around the world, he is the absolute grand master, Wizard of Oz sushi guy. Like people eat his sushi and burst into tears might be a little pretentious, but <laughs> it's an emotional experience because it's just so perfect. But when they ask him, you know, how did you perfect your sushi? He said, I've never made the perfect sushi in my life. 
I'm always striving to make the perfect sushi. And I think that is the, the key mindset is always approaching it like you can do better, you can do better, you can do better, knowing that in the long term, you will never make the perfect bag. You will never make the perfect wallet. You will never create the perfect product is not humanly possible, but you strive for it and you're still happy with that and you accept that. That's when you win. That's how you win, is always moving forwards, always getting better, always developing, getting stronger, but always staying humble with it, knowing that everything you create is always something you could have done better, learning from it, implementing that, and then the process starts again, and then acceptance. Accept that that's the way it is, and that's the beauty of it. So the next question, how does it feel to take the next step? Uh, sorry, how does it take, how does it, good Lord, how does it feel to take the next step into a new workshop? How does it feel? It feels wonderful, first of all. Uh, it's been a long time coming. It's been a lot of hard work. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been a, a couple of years now doing the courses. All the time, my vision was I needed to expand into a bigger workshop, a better workshop, something that gives me more space, gives me better light, gives me more room to expand, uh, potentially hire new people, taking on interns, and just opening up more opportunities. Um, you know, I think it's always good. Well, I think it's always good. It's essential, should I say, to have long-term goals of visions of what you see for your future. Now, yours might be different from mine. You don't have to share it with anyone. But I think whatever you get into, you should always have a vision of what you want at the end of this. What are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? If it's just because I like doing leathercraft, but that's going to handicap you. A better way of looking at it is, I want to do this so I can master building attache cases, or I want to do this so I can build a viable, thriving business for me and my family where I have a vision of owning my own workshop, supporting my family, teaching other people, or whatever it is that you want to do. I'm just making things up, not necessarily uh, my story or your story. But if you have a vision of where you can see and almost taste the outcome of, of what you're doing, then you have your why. And when you can answer why you're doing something, if someone says to you, where are you going with all this? If you shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, well, you're probably not going to end up where you want to be. Once you understand where, you, where you're going with everything in, in your craft, in your business, in your life, whatever it is, you're more likely to get there if you have a plan. It's a bit like um, you know, getting onto a, a Boeing 747 with two of the best Top Gun pilots in the world, uh, full of fuel, to the max and setting off into the skies and then the uh, pilot says to you okay so where are you going where do you want to go and you go i don't know doesn't matter how much fuel that plane is carrying doesn't matter how good those pilots are you're not actually going to end up anywhere and you might end up somewhere that you don't want to be so always have a plan always have a destination where you're going with this and here's why i say a lot of people don't go well i don't know i don't i don't have that kind of imagination i don't have a vision tell you what make something up Put something out there and go, uh, I want to have uh, a brand, a high street brand selling bags, okay? 
And then a year into that, you go, this is not really what I want. But in the meantime, I, f- I really feel that I want to move into this direction. Sometimes it just you just need to get moving, even if it's in the wrong direction. It's a bit like being stuck in a maze and you're going, my goal is to get out of the maze, but I don't know which way to go, so I'm going to stand here. Well, guess what? You're always going to be in the maze. As soon as you start moving, at least you can see which exit is blocked, which is the wrong direction, really, you know, which is obviously the incorrect path. Then using what you've learned about going the wrong way, you can start figuring out the right way and where you need to go. You don't have to have the answers right now. You just need to get moving. And that is essentially it. So how does it feel to move into a new workshop? It's the next step. It's the next step in my plan for my life, what I'm looking to achieve. And it feels very good. So it's um, something I'd recommend to everybody is make sure every step that you move up to is part of your, your vision, your grand plan for your life, essentially. Uh, so the next question is your thoughts. Oh, this is a, this is a different one. Uh, your thoughts on the differences between an artist and a craftsman. The differences between an artist and a craftsman. That's a really tough one. Uh, I believe I actually answered this one on Instagram stories, and it was something along the lines of the noise that comes out of your mouth and your own perceptions. Uh, basically, what I'm saying is the difference between an artist and a craftsman is is just the word and what you think it means to you. What it th- what I think it means to me, an artist is someone who creates for art's sake. So perhaps a very creative person with an eye towards aesthetics. Generally, I don't see leather craftspeople purely as artists because in my personal mind, and I'm not an art critic, I'm not an art aficionado, I see art as something that invokes an emotion, be it positive or negative, but it really doesn't necessarily form a function. So I wouldn't personally look at a bag and think that's a work of art. I think I would look at that as a combination of good design, an excellent craftsmanship, an execution of technique. I wouldn't necessarily look at it as I would uh, a painting by Sir Francis Bacon or Monet or something like that. Um, I don't see a function in in art necessarily. And and again, that's perception. No one can say that that's right or that's wrong um, because a lot of people agree one way or the other. But I would say an an, an artist, there there is some art, there is some art in creating, Um, whether that be designing sketches and an artistic expression of what you have a vision for the bag or what it's going to look like or the wallet or whatever it is that you're creating. Now, there are some artists who use leather. Don't get me wrong. They create sculptures and they create uh, unique pieces out of leather. But it really is is an, a functioning item necessarily. A craftsperson is someone who creates generally accepted with a degree of high skill. So, you know, you could look at the people at Hermes uh, as craftspeople. 
because they assemble pieces and they have to have a high degree of skill in order to do so to create a, a Birkin bag or a Constance or a Kelly or whatever it, whatever it happens to be. But I, I wouldn't necessarily call them artists. Now, some could call them an artisan. That's also a word that could be used in the stead of a craftsman. Now, someone could describe uh, a craftsman as an artisan. Personally, I see a craftsman as someone who creates, but not necessarily with their own designs. So an artisan usually has more freedom of expression, like an artist, but also they could be a craftsperson who creates bags and wallets and cases. Again, this is highly subjective. Some people are going to agree, some people are not, but it's generally perception. And there's actually a really good book by Richard Sennett, and he created the book The Craftsman. Um, very interesting book. It's not the world's easiest read, but it's. I think it's a good one for people to have or download if uh, if there's an ebook version available, because it, it really does give you a different perspective of craftsmanship versus skilled labor, um, and it, it's 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 very interesting. And in fact, there's one expression that I use quite a lot, where he describes the definition of a craftsman as someone who finds problems in order to solve them. And the process of craftsmanship and growing in craftsmanship is constantly finding a problem, solving a problem, finding another problem, solving another problem. And that creates the evolution and the growth of a craftsman as his, his or her skill gets better and more advanced and more vast. Um, because at the moment you stop being able to find problems, you can no longer create a solution for that problem and the growth stops. It's a bit like, I don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous um, saying, you know, the, the first stage to recovery is admitting you have a problem. Because if you can't find the problem, you can't create a solution. So, you know, when the day comes where you look at your work and think, oh, that's perfect, that's the end of it. That's where your, that's where your craft stops. So the moment you look at your work and think it's the best thing you've ever seen and it's flawless, start getting a bit worried um, because there should be a no point, any point where you look at your work and think perfection. Um, even other people's work, there's no such thing as perfection. It's just you can't see it. And when you know that, it opens up a whole new world for you. So my final thoughts for this podcast as the rain starts to come down on the roof, hopefully it's not going to get too loud <laughs> before I can finish. Final thoughts are Uncertain times right now, guys. Um, a lot of people stuck at home, nothing to do, worried about their business, worried about the future, worried about going back to their jobs, if the company they work for is going to survive, um, whether or not they're going to get sick. Maybe you have elderly relatives who are susceptible to the disease. Try and focus on getting through this and what life is going to be like at the end of it. Because if you can use your time wisely, if you can make the best of a bad situation, you win. That's it. If you can make the best of a bad situation, you win. So when this is over, and it is going to be over at some point, we are going to get through this. We are going to be fine. What are you going to be doing? Because there might be people out there who've been conserving cash 
who have been conserving, conserving resources. There might be new toilet paper entrepreneurs out there who have hoarded everything from the supermarkets and now <laughs> they've got to sell off their inventory and they've got some spare cash to spend. <laughs> People are going to have income. They might have no problems getting money during this period. They've been sent home, they're working from home, but they're not spending money. When this is through, spring's going to be here, summer's coming in, people might be looking to buy leather goods. So in the meantime, are you going to be ready for that? That could be one of the good outcomes of this. Another good outcome is use this time, use this opportunity to learn new things, to read new books. I know there's a lot of people that have been contacting me saying, during this time, they've been stuck at home doing nothing. They'd be watching all the courses they just didn't have time to watch with their day jobs and their families and things like that. And now they've been watching it and they're moving ahead. They're evolving. They're learning new things. And I think it's a perfect time to try and move yourself forwards. Experiment with leather. Do something you've never done before. If you're into European leather work, try tooling. If you're used, if you're used to Western-style leather work, Try European style. If you keep experimenting, learning, reading, watching documentaries, courses, things like that, you can come through this more empowered and better off than you went into it. So use this time wisely. Don't waste it. Don't binge on Netflix. At the very least, try and spend one hour every day doing something that's going to advance you, ideally towards a goal that you have for your future. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into this podcast. And as always, stay safe, guys, and keep your all sharp. Thank you for listening.